0: Good morning, everybody, and happy Friday to you. My name is Connor Collins, and welcome to the Concast, a podcast where we discuss all things health, wellness, and injuries in an attempt to better understand the human body. During this episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Albert Taylor. Dr. Taylor is a retired professor from the University of Western Ontario and a retired dean of the kinesiology program there. He has taught a variety of courses on healthy aging and physiology throughout his career, as well as being published over 400 times, and has given over 500 presentations in 100 countries on a variety of topics related to physiology. Dr. Taylor also served as a fellow for the American College of Sports Medicine, was the president of both the Science and Sports Medicine Council of Canada, and the Canadian Society for Exercise Physiology. Throughout our conversation, we discussed what healthy aging is, a variety of his research studies, as well as the topic of hormesis or how exercise can be used as a positive stressor on the body. This was a really, really fascinating conversation. I learned a lot as always, and I hope that you do too. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the interview. Bert, well, uh, I really appreciate it taking the time out uh, and spending some time with me today, first of all. Uh, before we get into some of today's topics, I wouldn't mind if you just introduce yourself to the audience and tell them a little bit about your career in a nutshell, because I know that you've done. So much research, and you've spoken across the world uh, a number, a high, high number of times. And so, I feel very lucky to have you in today's conversation. Introduce yourself for the audience first, and, and then we'll get into today's topics.
1: Okay. Well, thank you very much for uh, having me on this podcast. I should start off with letting uh, the audience know that I am a professor emeritus from the University of Western Ontario. Had a forty-year career in research. And during my career, I have been a professor at the University of Alberta, the University of Montreal, and the University of Western Ontario. And I think throughout the talk, we will get into uh, what is important or has been important to me and the nature of the research that I've done.
0: Great. So I guess my first question for you, Bert, is why did you get into the field that you got into? way back when, if you think to even before your academic career and your 40 years of research and your 40 years of speaking across the globe, what drew you to whether we want to call it health and fitness or wellness or research? What was the driving factor for you early on to draw you towards this industry and and push you to investigate the things that you did throughout your career?
1: Okay, that's a very long answer, but I'll try to be as concise as I can. Um, I was raised by my grandparents, uh, maternal grandparents, and uh, my grandmother came from a long uh, medical family. Her father was a surgeon from uh, the uh, Edinburgh School of Surgery, which at that time was the number one school of surgery in the world. And then when they came to Canada, he uh, started two different hospitals, and as a result, my grandmother was uh, determined that I would go to university and uh, be in medical school, and that's what happened. Uh, I went to University of Western Ontario, not to be in medical school, but to play football. <laughs> so <laughs> that, that really helped, but I, I spent two years in uh, pre-medicine. I did not enjoy it. Uh, because there was no time for sport, and I wanted to be involved in sport. And I'd always been an athlete, and I had to be very fit to be a good athlete. So that's what drove me. And then so what happened as a result when I I, uh, I left uh, med school and I went into physical education, which I really enjoyed very much, by chance... Um, I had a mentor, Uh, his name was Dr. Michael Juhasz, and he um, was determined that I was going to continue on doing research after he had got me to do a a fourth-year research project with him in the area of cardiology. And he had a friend, Dr. Stan Brown at University of British Columbia, and he made certain that I was going there for my master's degree, and that's what happened. And by chance, uh, one of their uh, former, uh, or one of their current professors at that time had done his doctorate at Washington State University. And so I was close by and I went down and I was interviewed by Dr. Phil Golnick, who was one of the world's, if not the world's leading authority in uh, exercise biochemistry. And uh, I was fortunate enough that uh, he took me on as a student and I was the first uh, student he had to complete his PhD.
0: When you got into and, and started your PhD, what was, your, what was the early work that you did in, and how has it kind of evolved over, or did evolve over the course of your career?
1: I should mention that he was the most research-funded professor at Washington State, And as a result, because he had so much research money, he had certain topics that he was working on for NIH, National Institute of Health in the United States. Right. So um, he didn't give us uh, his doctoral students. He did not give us very much opportunity to select what we wanted to do because he had to fulfill the requirements of his, his grant. But... During those years at Washington State, he drilled us uh, into realizing how important research was. And he made certain that um, he gave us insight into several research topics that he thought might be useful for us when we graduated and went home. If we graduated and went home. Right. I had no choice. I had to graduate. I was on uh, one of the first three uh, Canadian Bill C-131s which was sending Canadians uh, to the United States to work on doctorates because there were none in Canada at that time. And uh, part of the deal was that you had to graduate and go home and take a position in Canada. And so I did that and I took some of the ideas that he gave me and I started work immediately at the University of Alberta and uh, Fitness Research Institute, which there were three of in Canada at that time, funded by the Canadian government, who in those days, there was a a Department of Health, a Department of Fitness, and Department of Sport, and they sort of amalgamated them. And the three individuals were um, myself, Dr. David Cunningham at the University of Western Ontario, and Dr. Ron Ferguson at the University of Montreal, two individuals who I ended up working with later when I transferred to those universities. So I carried on some of the work that I I started at Washington State, and that was on free fatty acid mobilization. And uh, Golnick uh, was one of the first individuals to be certain that you could apply exercise to biochemistry and to physiology. And so that's what he led us into, led me into. And so when I got to the University of Alberta, I continued on with some of my free fatty acid mobilization work. And then I found some things to do that I liked a little more. And I uh, was fortunate enough to have enough grant money and university money to buy the necessary equipment. And they built me a new lab, a new biochemistry lab as well at Alberta. So I was able to continue on in that work and, uh, using exercise as the stimulant because uh later on in this podcast we'll come up with a word called hormesis when i explain it i think the audience will understand better what i mean uh, when uh, exercise is a stimulant the same as uh, has the same effects as uh, such things as diet and fatty acids and uh, exercise itself or exercise mixed with diet So it became a very, very important topic.
0: So at that time, some of the emerging topics were the value of, and correct me if I'm wrong, the value of exercise and its effect on the physiology of the human body. Is that correct? The emergence of that topic and that research and the true value of what exercise may bring to the human body.
1: Yes. In in those days, almost all of the the major research was with animals Mm -hmm. because we didn't have any invasive techniques uh, with humans at that time. And I was fortunate enough that uh, the three universities I've worked at, I've had a joint appointment in um, medicine and in physical education. So I really had the opportunity to use the science along with the exercise programs. And back in those days, which uh, was 1960s and 70s, um, there there just wasn't very much scientific work going on in physical education. So most of my work initially uh, was done in medicine, and uh, I continued on in, in both and took the advantage of both. And then if you look at it today, you'll find that there's a tremendous amount of science and medicine involved in physical education research, and it's It's good research. It's excellent research. And so I was fortunate enough to be one of the front runners in uh, bringing that into publishable work uh, that was accepted by the scientific and medical community.
0: And so it sounds like part of the passion for that came from your own interest in being an athlete, as well as some of the influence that you did in your doctoral work. And then did you also see this kind of need in the research um, when you looked at it? Was it sparse at that time? And you thought, look, this is something that I have an interest in this. And and so I should start to investigate it a little bit more and see whether there is a a true physiological connection from a positive standpoint with respect to exercise in the human body.
1: Yes. We we had to, because uh, that was all in the initial work. And, um, the other two individuals uh, who were uh, on the, the fitness research units uh, were both doing human research, uh, Cunningham and Ferguson at uh, Western and Montreal, they were doing human research, and therefore there were no invasive techniques there, so I was the one that sort of dedicated towards the, uh, that, and um, uh, I was very fortunate at that time that Health Canada was very much in favor of this kind of work being done. So I have to admit, and I, and I don't want to, to, to feel like I'm bragging or blowing my own horn, but I was fortunate enough to have uh, a great deal of uh, research money at that time uh, to do animal research. And uh, with the medical school being kitty corner from phys ed, I had an office in one and a lab in another and uh, the opportunity then to work with uh, the, ra- the rats the dogs and the horses that i that i worked with all animals that are very very active uh, so it fitted nicely with uh, what i wanted to do uh, but i really uh, because gallic was continuing on with his work with uh, fat mobilization and free fatty acids i felt that uh, i had to um, do something different and i did go down to see him and talk about it And that's when I started doing um, the work with uh, uh, skeletal muscle primarily and looking at energy substrates and how they are used with exercise. And so I started work initially with glycogen, and then I got into working with glycogen cycle enzymes, which nobody in the world had done. And just so the audience is aware, uh, glycogen is a a primary source of energy in the body, along with fat, of course, but it can't be used by the body in the form of glycogen. So it has to be broken down and it's broken down with what are called glycogen cycle enzymes and it's broken down into a usable form of glucose. And uh, so I started that and... The other point was that at that time, Alberta had the only PhD in Canada in physical education. So the number of students was enormous. And I walked into a Milstrom, which I wasn't expecting, but the dean came to see me and uh, he said, welcome uh, to the University of Alberta. Come to this meeting tomorrow and you're going to get your 12 graduate students. And here I was. I would never, never chaired a graduate student and all of a sudden I've got 12 and they're from different countries and uh, and across Canada. And that, let me tell you, I didn't get much sleep for the yeah. next four years. In fact, I learned how to live on four hours of sleep, which I still do today. And I've done it for the last 40 years. But the, the students that were coming there uh, were highly uh, recommended from their universities, they're and really brilliant students. So I was very fortunate that way. I have to admit, they did most of the legwork, most of the dog work, and uh, as a result, uh, we got a lot of publications. And when you get a lot of publications in good journals, you get a lot of research money to continue on, and that's what happened. And so, over my career, I ended up with. Uh, and I've had to go look this up that uh, 163 graduate students in my career, wow. which is a lot, especially when many of them keep in touch with you. And you know, it takes up a lot of your time uh, mm-hmm. emailing back and forth. However, that's what we, we started doing this. And uh, as a result of that, I got invited to many places around the world because nobody had done this work before. And it was something new and we had to develop the uh, techniques, the lab techniques to analyze these particular enzymes. And uh, so I made sure I had an outstanding chemist and another biochemist with me and and we continued on in that that work. And uh, I did that for the next seven years at the University of Alberta.
0: With respect to to that work specifically, so you were looking at the enzymes that are involved in the conversion of glycogen to glucose, is that right? That's correct. At that time, there wasn't a lot of work in that field. What was it that you were investigating specifically and how did it evolve? And then what was the overall kind of conclusion of that research? Were you looking at it with respect to the influence of exercise on these enzymes?
1: Yes, that's what all of all of our studies. Uh, I don't think in all my publications, I don't think I've got hardly any that do not include exercise as a modality. Mm-hmm. So in those days, we had a we had a rodent treadmill. We had a treadmill um, over the vet school that the dogs could uh, walk on, and we had a horse treadmill for the horses to uh, exercise on. And and uh, as a result, them um, uh, initially we were. We could take blood uh, muscle samples from them because uh, you can do that with animals uh, very, very easily and very readily, and it's not unethical. Later on, when I started doing human work, you'll find that uh, that wasn't quite as easy. It wasn't quite the same. But uh, as a result of this, uh, uh, we had several publications where what we showed was that exercise actually increase the activity of those enzymes the glycolytic enzymes and as a result when you do that then the uh, animal whichever type of animal it is human included they, they have more glycogen converted to glucose that they can use because the higher the enzyme activity the more conversion of the glycogen to the um Uh, glucose usable glucose so when you when you have animals control animals that you do not exercise and then you test them and uh, and then you find well whoa uh, the enzyme activity levels are not increasing uh, then it definitely shows you that exercise helps you do that and therefore uh, you get more uh, substrate energy substrate because you exercise these animals
0: And what type of exercise did you look at? Did you look at a variety of exercises from like cardiovascular to, did you end up getting into human studies with resistance training as well?
1: We had some resistance training studies, but most of all I was interested in the aerobic component. Later on, uh, we may talk about later, uh, I did, uh, I did test, uh, for example, Canada's weightlifting team, Canada's judo team, wrestling team, teams that use a lot of anaerobic energy sources. We did, and then we, and we measured them as well. But we couldn't do that because there was no way of doing it. Well, well, in my last uh, couple of years at Alberta, the Swedes uh, developed the muscle biopsy technique. Mm-hmm. So I went to Sweden, and I spent a year with uh, the world's outstanding exercise physiologist, Dr. Banks Saltin, and he taught me the, uh, the biopsy technique, and uh, I came home and uh, taught several uh, people, primarily medical schools across Canada and the United States, to use it. But as a result, we now had a tool that we could use to measure the same things in humans that we were measuring in the, uh, animals.
0: Mm-hmm. And what year was that?
1: That was 1960, geez, I made you myself, aren't it? 1964.
0: So before that point in time, no researchers at all were using muscle biopsy or just in that sort of exercise physiology space?
1: The, the muscle biopsy technique was copied after a um, auger that the people in forestry were using to take core samples in wood. And uh, one of the profs in Sweden said, well, why don't we try and do this to make it so we can use it with humans and human muscle. And uh, so they did. They developed a needle that uh, could be used, the same type, a plunger type, and then a little shaft comes down and cuts off a piece of muscle well that's the first step the second step of course is that you've only got pieces of muscle that are 10 to 100 milligrams very very small samples and as a result then all of a sudden you have to start developing new techniques so you, you couldn't measure glycogen in a small sample like that before so different labs developed measuring glycogen uh, in that and uh, and then they started i started on the enzymes with the humans repeating much of the work or a lot of the work we had done with animals because now we could
0: right what did you find when you were looking at some of those anaerobic sports did you find that a particular sport type increased uh, glycogen usage based on the demand of that sport or was everything relatively consistent across all all anaerobic sports
1: well what we found was that the 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 results that we got with the humans was very similar to what we got with the animals which shouldn't come as a surprise because we only worked with mammals. Um, But it was pretty much the same because what had to be developed next was the the different types of animals, the different mammals, they don't all have the same fiber types in the muscle. So techniques primarily in uh, Sweden and Germany were developed to measure the different fiber types in those little weenie samples that we had. And so then all of a sudden, microscopes come back into the lab and so forth. And uh, we then could actually measure the size of the muscle fibers. And then we did what um, Banks Saltine used to say, I'm, I'm making most of my students blind. You'd have to go in a little room where there was no air whatsoever. You would dehydrate those little muscle samples. You'd look at them under a microscope, and then you would tease out these microfibers. And then when you got enough of them, you would use them to um, measure the, uh, the glycogen and then the enzymes as well, and then you could see the differences. And what was found is that with the different types of athletes, is that athletes who trained for endurance work had a great number of uh, slow twitch fibers, which means that they were primarily using uh, primarily uh, free fatty acids or fat as a source of substrate for for those fibers, and then the uh, other sports that are primarily anaerobic, they had very large and many more fast twitch fibers. And they were using primarily glycogen over a period of time. And just in very, very quick work, they would use ATP as their sub, adenosine triphosphate as their substrate. And so here, all of a sudden, over a period of about 20 years, we could now measure in humans their fiber types. We could give them different types of exercise to see if we could change the fiber type. Uh, we would see what sources of energy they were using, and with exercise training, we could see if we could change uh, amount of substrate that they were using. So it was really some fantastic work, but it was all micro.
0: Mm-hmm. But it seems like at that time, it was very groundbreaking work to to again look at the the influence of energy, which... I then assume sort of kick-started some research on diet and its influence on exercise and, and maybe not by yourself, but maybe by other people at the time as well.
1: Well, we did, uh, when we started getting into, uh, many projects and, uh, many different, uh, research programs, then we decided to know, well, what effect would diet have? Because it seemed that everybody knew, but nobody knew that how important diet was. Along with exercise, and so here was an opportunity to change the diets of individuals and see what, how, what effect it had on the enzymes, if any, what effect it had on laying down the substrates uh, in the in the body. And uh, actually, started this work when I was at Washington State with Phil Dominic, and we were, we actually were using rats and uh, changing their diet and then trying to see what effect that had on cholesterol, uh, what effect it had on laying down of glycogen, et cetera. And uh, all those papers, of course, were published many years ago. But in look in the literature today, people are still doing this. They're still, they're taking biopsies, they're doing fiber typing, they're changing diets, and they're looking at uh, athletes or non-athletes who exercise regularly, whether it be anaerobic or aerobic, And, uh, they're finding that, that the most important thing is a combination of diet and exercise to really convert what you want.
0: Yeah. It it appears as this research advances, as you suggested, diet and exercise in combination get, get you the best results when you're looking at kind of overall health and wellness. What do you think about some of the, do you follow sort of the diets that are out there now that keto and low carb and high carb and all these things do you pay much attention to to that type of stuff
1: i used to but now i find that uh so many of these diets they're really fake many of the diets uh, they don't have a very good scientific programs to do the research on what they're doing a great number of them are people who do no research but they they go to the literature and they find things and they publish this, they get their book out, they make themselves some money, and you never hear from them again.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes they're just cherry picking the research, right?
1: Oh, yeah. There's, there's, there's a lot of that goes on, and, and too much of it, but you'll find that uh, there is uh, some good research coming out, and a lot of it is from dietitians. a lot of it is from uh, physical education people, and a lot of it is from medicine on diet. And then it's a case of combining that with the exercise programs to see what changes you can bring about.
0: Mm -hmm. You mentioned, sorry, did you have something you want to add there, Bert?
1: I left uh, the University of Alberta, and then I went to Sweden, of course. And then when I left Sweden, I came back to the University of Montreal with my old friend, uh, Ron Ferguson, who was the, uh, the head of research for the Montreal Heart Hospital. So I had an opportunity to work with him, but everything that we did, of course, had to be with humans, and that's what got me into working with the heart and and humans. And and a little later on, uh, with some of my grad students on heart transplant, it also got me involved a little bit more in in the, the physiology instead of the biochemistry, because Ferguson uh, is a uh, primarily an expert in oxygen uptake and uh, aerobic work. And so we did a lot of work with that. And then, uh, and a lot of it was with children so that we could see what happens, changes from children as they progress and and, uh, mature when they become adults. And so we sometimes got a chance to do some things with children and then find the same kids years later and do some uh, when they were a little older. But one of the things that we started to do, which um, I did, I I had a joint appointment there in physiology and in uh, it's called Activity Physique. We started taking biopsies um, from children and then finding some really interesting work with them, especially when we started dealing with the athletes, because we found that... um, that the data, the results of the data was very similar to what we had found before. But now we had young kids who already were at, in the, with the enzyme levels and the substrate levels were already at a level who, which many of the athletes were 10, 20 years ago. And so now we said, no, look, at, they're starting at a higher level. We put them on continued ath- athletic uh, training programs are those levels going to increase? And the answer is yes, they did. So the first question then that comes up is, is there a limit? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Really work these kids for the next 10 years, is there a limit? And then I had the opportunity to uh, visit some labs in Russia and found out that they were already doing that, but they weren't telling anybody and they weren't publishing it. And that's one of the reasons we feel that so many in those days, so many of the Russian athletes, uh, who were never heard of all of a sudden became world champions and world athletes and had, we don't know what their, their results of their data was because the Russians would not tell us. Hmm. And they only published it in Russian. Uh, one of the, well, I guess at that time, the only country in the world that was not publishing in English, which was the scientific language of the world.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it was interesting to, to do that work. And, uh, and of course, we had a lot of uh, opportunities uh, uh, to work with uh, people at the, uh, the Montreal hospitals, which are very research-oriented. That all came to an end uh, because I was offered the uh, deanship of, uh, first of all, physical education and then kinesiology at the University of Western Ontario, which was my alma mater and uh, it was very difficult to not turn them down but they built some labs for me and uh, they had a a great group of, of individuals at the time who outstanding researchers but their area of interest was aging physical activity and aging the canadian center for activity and aging is at western So we set up a a great group of laboratory people there, Dave Cunningham and Don Peterson and Charles Rice, Greg Marsh, John Kowalchuk, and especially Earl Noble. And these people, this was the first time that we ever had a group this large in Canada working together on similar topic. What we did then is we then decided to work with people who were senior citizens and, uh, male and female. And I carried on my work with the biopsy techniques and the, uh, substrate work and the enzyme work that was all carried on, uh, at Western for the next, uh, gosh, I went there in 82 and I left in 2006. So for the next 24 years, I guess, we worked almost totally with seniors aging and the effects of exercise on the aging process. And that's when we found that their individuals right up to about 82 years of age could still be trained. They could still increase their enzyme activities, not as high as the young people. They could still increase their ability to lay down substrates, not as much as the young. So gave us the opportunity to draw curves. And uh, Don Patterson and Dave Cunningham drew the most important one because they showed that these effects effects of exercise increase almost uh, the slippery slope started at about age 82 but these people when when you looked at the curves and you look at the um, at the older individuals who do not exercise, the curve is drawn in sort of a linear fashion. those who are on exercise program the curve is substantially, Above that, which means that they would be healthy individuals and able to carry out work at uh, something like 5 to 10 years longer uh, than the others, or at an age 5 to 10 years older.
0: So in short, you can still make positive adaptation through exercise at that age is what you're saying?
1: Yeah, what you're doing, you're maintaining.
0: Maintaining, right.
1: Where Where the other people are decreasing, declining, Those people are maintaining and you stay about uh, on a curve, you you stay about 10 years ahead of them. They even had uh, in the in the clinic, we had people, uh, one individual who was 101 years old and he was still uh, exercising on that treadmill and and his curve was well above the 50, 60 year olds who were not exercising. So it really showed the the uh, importance of uh, of exercise on the aging process and healthy aging.
0: So that brings me to a question. Um, In any of your research, did you look at, I'll give you two scenarios. So let's say a person is incredibly active earlier in life, let's say 30 to, or let's say 20 to 45, 50 years old. And then for whatever reason, they just stop their activity, but their activity level is really, really intense, really, really high. And then they stop their activity at, let's say 50 and never exercise again, versus say somebody with a a more moderate or uh, low activity level, but they're more consistent into their later years. Did you look at any scenarios in, in the research like that, where one is more beneficial than the other?
1: Yes, we did. And uh, what we found was that those people who had exercised for extended periods of time, uh, say from 20 to 50, and then stopped, it took a much longer time for their uh, improved physiological functions to decrease. After they got to the age of about 82, the curves were starting to run into each other. Um, But so they had 20, 30 years that they still had the benefit from what they had done before. It just was that it decreased uh, at a quicker level than those people who are still exercising.
0: Right, that's, that's very interesting.
1: Well, after we did that, of course, uh, and we've got lots of publications on on aging, and uh, as you are uh, know, my my last book just came out on physical activity and aging, and and um, when I retired in two thousand and five, I wasn't ready to retire. The government said you are, uh, the neurons stopped working when it hit 65. So we didn't have any choice in those days. And so I went to Hungary because I could still work. And I went, I had a joint appointment at the Summer Medical School and uh, they have a university of physical education. And I met up with uh, an individual named Dr. Schultz Radek, And that's where we started getting into... Uh, working in the area of hormesis, we used it with exercise, we used it with diet, and we used it with cognitive function. And um, so just so so your people know, uh, the listeners know what hormesis is, it's a a characteristic of uh, many biological processes that is biphasic or triphasic in some instances in a response to a stressor. Well, exercise is a stressor, even though it has positive outcomes initially it's still a stressor. So what can happen in the hormesis means that two phases can occur. Uh, One, if you give too little, it's going to be derogatory, negative effect. If you give too much, it's pretty good. And then there are some stressors that's just the opposite. If you give uh, too little, you get poor effects. If you give too much, you get good effects. And so we started to look at um, uh, several things using the hormesis as a theory. And so we looked at uh, some, well, very many enzymes, including DNA repair enzymes and sirtuins, uh, which are uh, uh, regulatory processes uh, that can cause aging and death in, in your individual cells. And so we look at those, and then we start to look at the various enzymes as well that are factors leading to disease. And so probably my last uh, 50, 60 publications were all in this area, and we look primarily at at cancer precursor enzymes, arthritis enzymes, diabetes, and cognitive function uh, enzymes. So we got a lot of interesting information, and I guess the bottom line is that that people would be interested in is that, for the most part, we found that exercise had a positive effect on these precursor enzymes, the pre-cancer enzymes, etc. And and that that is highly significant uh, in this day and age, showing that uh, such a very very positive effect of exercise on diseases of aging later in life so that's what i spent uh, the next uh, 10 to 12 years doing in hungary and uh, then uh, it was decided by my family that it was time to retire so when i hit 80 i uh, i i retired except for the book the last book and uh, and that's it. So I'm now retired. I'm very pleased with the work we found. But most of all, I'm pleased that so many of my graduate students have gone on and are continuing uh, research in their own areas. I don't think I should mention any of them, but the, there's one I I'd, I'd like to mention anyway. And that's Dr. Phil Gardner, who's at the, in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of uh, Manitoba. And he's in charge of their uh, neurology area. And he's still doing exercise programs and the effect on nervous system. And uh, uh, he's head of that unit. And uh, he's doing very, very well. I can mention several others.
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you have so many graduate students that you've overseen So I'm sure that the ripple effect of your mentorship with them is is you probably don't even understand the magnitude of it, really.
1: No, we never, we never did anything for them or with them, uh, hoping to have something in return. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think one of the things I'm most proud of is 163 students, 162 of them, their work was their, either their master's or their doctoral work was published. And that to me, the one, uh, only one did not. And the, and there's some good reasons for that. But um, it's been a varied career. It's been a very rewarding career. And as a result, I've, uh, I've got to meet a lot of wonderful people, some outstanding researchers, and, and um, seen a lot of countries, given a lot of talks at different places and enjoyed it.
0: I think we could probably talk for hours about your career. It sounds like it's you've had so much influence on on what we would consider to be the health fitness wellness industry today looping back to the hormesis question or the hormesis body of research did you come up with or uh, conclude a minimal effective dose for healthy stressors on the body or is it so variable depending upon the individual that's in front of you that you you can't really
1: well, it's it's not only variable; it, it's it's also the fact that uh, individuals are so different, and you have such a large n, a large number of uh, people in the study, so that you can come up with your responses with a, you know, that you're statistically it's significant, and um, some of the ones we have we've worked with are like. Uh, The DNA repair enzymes, extremely important, because if your DNA starts to break down, so does everything in your body. Mm -hmm. And there are there are enzymes in your inner body that are called DNA repair enzymes. And I think most people in this in this day and age are familiar with DNA. Mm -hmm. And um, even in situations where the DNA has been exposed to radiation, we found that some exercise programs were able to uh, enhance the, uh, the repair enzymes so that the DNA could be repaired and could repair quicker in certain instances. And that, that is just so important that if people realized, and it's so easy for me to say it as a researcher, but if people realized the value of their exercise programs and what they're affecting then i think we'd have more and more people exercising and we'd have fewer and fewer obese people in this country mm-hmm. um, and not just in this country but but i look back at when uh, when i first started uh, university and uh, you had to hunt around for obese people uh today you just have to walk out the street and uh, we have so many and so and the obesity is primarily related to diet and exercise. And we've now shown, and not just we, but so many researchers now shown, that diet and exercise it keeps your weight down, it also enhances your enzymatic responses and, and your, your substrate responses so that you would be healthy. And we, at the present time, do not have a healthy population. And if you want to know, my, my definition of health is a state of being free from illness and injury. And the, the injury, I know a lot of it comes from physical activity. We can't do anything about that. Try to be a little more safer. Um, but the, the illness factor... Even now, with some of the work showing effect on DNA uh, suggests that physical activity, if your DNA is in good shape, then you'll probably be uh, uh, more illness-free than if it
0: isn't. So this brings me to a question that actually one of my listeners reached out to me and asked me to ask you this, and it it kind of parlays well with what you just said regarding Um, Obesity and really the epidemic that obesity has become within the world and he asked me to pass this along and say Why do you think so many people? Have difficulty grasping some of the concepts of diet and exercise Um, A lot of people believe that they either can't improve or they don't necessarily understand what the body's capable of and then furthermore How do you think we can shift? these sort of preconceived assumptions that people still hold and help society as a whole realize how to improve their health? Or do you think maybe that they recognize this, There, but there might be you know, several other, whether it be mental health challenges, socioeconomic challenges or hurdles that they face um, that are maybe more a priority for them?
1: Well, one of the first comments that I would have to make is that if you ask somebody who's obese, how long have you been obese? Well, it's taken me ten years. Well, it might take you ten years to not be obese anymore. You right. to work hard. It's it's well proven now that exercise alone will not prevent obesity. Diet alone will not prevent obesity. It becomes like a like a roller coaster. It is most important that it is a combination of the two. Well, why don't many people want to exercise? Well, number one, it's hard work. Number two, they have a diet that they really like, they don't want to change. Right. Number three, they don't care if they're obese, mm-hmm. or overweight even. And they, they have to realize that it took a long time to get the point you are mm-hmm. it's going to take a long time to get back to where you should be. I have people come to me and say, well, wait a minute, Fred Smith down the street ran five kilometers every day uh, for 10 years. And then he died of a heart attack. My response has to be, well, he, if he hadn't have exercised, he might've died of a heart attack nine years ago. Not, not today. Mm-hmm. Um, that it helped for a And then, of course, there's the DNA factor where we have genes. And we have to realize that when we inherit the certain genes, we're going to have certain problems. Uh, there are genes for cancer. There are genes for, for uh, rheumatoid arthritis. There are genes for diabetes. And there's not a heck of a lot we can do about them except to try and prolong our life and make it a healthy, quality, full-quality life And uh, that can be done in many instances uh, with exercise and appropriate diet.
0: Really just, I think you mentioned it earlier in the show, everybody is, there's so many factors that go into each individual, but one of the things that we know is that diet and exercise when done through a healthy lens is really, really the best route to go. I think as well, sometimes in this day and age, you know, with the advent of the internet and social media, there's a lot of kind of marketing towards quick fixes, right? Do this sort of 30-day yes. 30, thirty day program or six-week, uh, you know, fat loss program. And then people go out and get maybe initial results and and then they yo-yo back um, based on, you know, maybe returning to previous lifestyle. I hear it all the time. It really is a lifestyle, right? Like it is something that you have to adopt and, and get into habits, that you enjoy right there's there's so many different ways that you can exercise in ways that you will enjoy it right if you don't enjoy getting on the elliptical every day then you can go for a hike right like there has to be some enjoyment to what you do I think um, in some of the other episodes that I've had people on one of the biggest messages that they have relayed is this idea that we use exercise as punishment rather than the idea that you know, you've got one body, you, sh- you want to treat it well, exercise and, and a healthy diet is is a way and a vehicle to do that. And so look at it through that lens. And sometimes maybe that simple reframing can can be a catalyst for change.
1: I was hoping that uh, they gave up on exercise as a punishment when I got through university, but it may still be there today. But uh, when I knew I was going to be on this podcast today, and I, I sort of uh, attempted to consider some of the questions that might be asked, I went over to, um, we have a local bookstore here Chapters Indigo, and I went over and, and I went to the uh, exercise and diet sections, because I've always tried to preach that if you're going to exercise, know what you're doing. Very few people have any training in in uh, exercise, what's the exercise prescription. And so therefore, you should get yourself a good book uh, and learn something or you should get yourself a good trainer, or you should go to a uh, fitness club that has quality people, qualified people. So I went over to the bookstore and I took a look and my goodness, the number of books that were written by unqualified people just scared me. Secondly, when I got into the, the drug stuff, uh, when you take a look at, at some of the books or especially advertisement on TV by the drug companies, there's a tremendous problem because every they have the anecdote for everything. And um, when you take a look at who is doing this for them a good number of their people are not really qualified and that, that creates a problem because they're going to go on and say, Oh, well, gee, we've tried this drug and look at the tremendous effects. Well, what they don't tell you is what was that person like a year later? Mm-hmm. Because the rebound effect starts to take effect and you're back on, on the roller coaster again. And, and that's a great problem. I, I, part of it is the fault of the government. Because they allow this type of advertisement to go on, and people believe it, they say, well, it was on CBC. It must be true. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I'm going to start using it. They don't think about going to their family physician because he might be the first, probably is the first one to tell them, "Oh, wait a minute. Uh, stay off of that. There was a certain diet. I won't mention it on the air, but there was a certain diet about 15 years ago and they found that uh, many people were dying from it and did you hear about it? no did the drug company tell you that no they just stopped producing it mm-hmm. you couldn't buy so i the government's a bit at fault uh well health canada works hard to do a good job and the publications and the advertisement that that we see out there i sometimes i either shake my head or turn it off but most people aren't trained, don't have the education in that area, and that creates a problem. And so they've got to go to, for help. If they don't know anything and they want to try something, go for help. Mm-hmm. Would you give your, your child something that you think might, might end up being deleterious uh, to them? Maybe not. It, yourself? Maybe Yes. So get, go, go to the experts and get the right information first.
0: Mm-hmm. And one of the great things about the internet and social media, now that I've outlined a negative effect, is it does bring communities of people together. So if you're in a local area, it's not necessarily that hard to find maybe groups of people that are a little bit more knowledgeable in the area of exercise or fitness or find that coach or trainer. You never know, maybe... Maybe it is you, you join a, a small group and they've got a great trainer and you're able to make some community there, there, which allows you to enjoy and, and change your lifestyle over time. But again, to your point regarding the, the research of the drug companies, I do think it is often irresponsible that a lot of these research studies are very short-lived. And as you alluded to, they don't look at the long-term effects. Okay, at one year, this person is, you know, our study would say, four weeks long or six weeks long we saw 10 pounds of weight loss but at a year they're they're the same or more based on the their current lifestyle
1: right and it's it's a case of education Um, we have to do a better job of educating right from elementary school on we have to do a better job of educating our people about the the beneficial effects of exercise and diet and lack of stress and People ask me, what do I think are the three most important things for a healthy lifestyle? One is appropriate exercise, appropriate diet, and try and be stress-free. And that's my big three.
0: I mean, that's something that you hear over and over and over. But I do like what you said about if you've gotten to a point in your life that it's taken you 10 years to get there, it may take you a little bit to get back to where you want to be this idea that it might not happen overnight and allowing kind of a truthful conversation i think might be might be beneficial
1: i agree 100 um, percent. so
0: it's obviously a lot more difficult than we're sort of breaking it down in this conversation right because i understand that many people have a whole host of factors that contribute to negative physical stressors, negative mental stressors, socioeconomic class, access to care, etc. But what we're talking about in the research is that as you alluded to, reasonable healthy diet, some element of exercise and stress management seems to be the big three in terms of looping back to what you define health as limiting lifestyle created disease and lifestyle created injury
1: right and you know the the day and age that we're in right now covid and uh, increased cost of items because of uh, for example the war in uh, that's going on in uh, ukraine etc etc these are really stressful things so if you want to help decrease your stress you have appropriate diet and exercise will will help bring down your stress some. And that's a start. And then you have to work on stress because we have so many mental health issues in this day and age.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Bert, I, uh we've gone about an hour here. Did you have anything that you wanted to add to any of the things that we talked about?
1: Well, there was just one thing which only takes a moment that uh, when I look at my own uh, opportunities and career, and that is that. If there's anybody out there who's thinking of going to university or graduate school or anything like that, the most important thing you can do is pick the best school, the best advisor, because uh, that advisor is going to lead you on into a career. And I look at what I did. I, I mean, Mike Uhas he sends me to Stan Brown. Stan Brown sent me to Phil Gawling. Phil Gawling sent, uh, sent me to Bank team. Bank team sent me to Joel Raddick. All of, they all recommend the experts, the top people. And if you want to be successful and do research that's going to be very beneficial to the general population, you got to work with the best people. And I was fortunate enough to do that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. It sounds like you really got your opportunity and you, you just ran with it, right? Well, and then 40 years later, you're on my podcast. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Well, there was a. There's a lot of pushing going on too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So cause you've got family to consider and uh lifestyle, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. uh, I was lucky I had the right people. I uh, I I I selected the right parents. Is that what they tell me? Cause then you've got the right genes. <laughs> yeah. So I was lucky that way.
0: Well, uh, I, I do really uh, appreciate your time coming on the show, Berta, and uh, it's it's been a really valuable conversation. I'm going to wrap it up here, folks. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Hopefully, you found some value in it. Have yourselves a great weekend, and we'll see you in the next one.